it's been a while since I've been able to do another one of these, and I hope to get through two more before the end of the year. I've moved since the last video, as the change in background scenery might indicate. Uh, I tried to keep my trusty lamp in the frame, but alas, time and four children have ensured that its stay upon this earth was rather meager in scope. In any case, I'm so glad that you've joined me again. Last time I finished up my discussion of what I called the, the first layer of the God question. If you recall, I've, I've been in the process of talking about the existence of God in terms of three layers. Uh, there's the phenomenological layer, the, the layer that gets at how reality seems to us in a basic way. In the last few videos then, I've, I've talked about the existence of God relative to that layer. In this video, I'm going to begin talking about the second layer, uh, what I've labeled the, the sort of moral and aesthetic layer. Here we identify uh, those elements of moral experience and aesthetic impulse that might prevent or contribute to belief in God. And so in the next several videos, I'll talk about realities like, like love and justice and how our experience of them might both prevent our belief in or be used alternatively to guide us toward God. Uh, after that discussion, which should take up three or so videos, I'll get into the positive rational arguments or proofs for God, that third layer then, the, the kind of rational argumentative layer. Uh, so we'll, we'll get into those rational arguments or proofs for God, or, or at least what might be called darn good reasons to think he exists. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and by way of reminder, the reason I'm going in this order is that if, if what I've argued so far is correct, we're at, we're at least less likely to feel the weight of the conclusion uh, 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 of any conclusion of our mind if our mind sits in tension with what the will perceives to be good and the mind and will together perceive to be beautiful. And so what I'm trying to do is work through what might prevent belief in God in those locations so that we can later find ourselves in a place to freshly appreciate the arguments that target the mind of man. In this particular video, what I want to do is deal with an objection to proceeding in this manner, and then also give a larger positive argument about why I think it's useful to work through things this way. This will involve a little bit of repetition of what was said earlier in the series, but I think it's important to remind ourselves of a few things as we get into this layer, especially of the God question. So, so first we'll talk about an objection, and then I'll talk about why and how we can safely proceed despite that objection, which will then serve as a good segue uh, into our next few videos. So the objection first. You know, for some persons, any reaction to Christian claims that is less than immediate persuasion and obedience must reflect some rebellion in their life. So the idea is that we, should, we shouldn't treat objections to the faith as real intellectual and certainly not real moral crises. That is to say, we should not think that anything good is firing in these scenarios when people have these reactions. Rather, clearly, one presumes questioning some claim in the faith is intrinsically pathological and probably rooted in some sin in their life. So if you're starting to question the existence of God, in all probability, this has something to do with the fact that you want to start sleeping with your girlfriend, or you want to discover some domesticated Christianity that gives you warm sentimental feelings, but doesn't actually you know, get around to telling you what to do about anything. And to be fair to this instinct, it's not entirely wrong. It doesn't take too much life experience to know that there are targets that are hit by such analyses. In fact, we only need to look in the mirror <laughs> to, adjust, to, to assess just how possible and probable that is. Uh, but looking in the mirror will also reveal something else. 
complicated as are all our musings by sin and temptation, those musings still often just do, it's just a fact, we're just staring at reality here, they just do coexist with sincerely legitimate desires to understand in moments of just basically human confusion. And so while it's certainly the case that the righteous seeker must be humble before God, open to correction, trying to discern where sin is driving their inquiry, etc. It's also the case that we must be simply honest with one's queries. You actually need to say out loud what reality seems like to you, what comes off to you as ugly, immoral, or arbitrary, not because any of that is the final authority or should be the final authority for what you believe and do, but because those are important signals to you about the real you. And, and, and wherever you wind up, the real you is coming along. So, you know, so best stare you in the face now. <laughs> Even if, for instance, sleeping with your girlfriend seems more attractive in its allure than the way of Christ, figure out why that is so. There are obviously you know, general reasons for this, for instance, that you're a sinner, but that can be fleshed out a tad, right? Uh, what does that feeling, for instance, tell you about your relationship to God? What does it tell you about your, your vision of human sexuality? What does it tell you about your general orientation in the world as such? You might think those are unrelated, but they're often very related. Uh, one's desires and feelings and thoughts are all ways of seeing ourselves and where we're really at precisely so we can discover the guidance of God in his revelation to us through nature and through scripture. So none of this is to say that we, you know, we first figure things out and then we obey. We obey according to our understanding of God's revelation, but also seek to figure out what might be behind any hesitancies or confusion in ourselves. That is to say, maybe, maybe they sometimes function to, maybe these, these faculties we're talking about sometimes function to correct misunderstandings in the mind. And we'll talk about that in just a bit. But it still needs to be added. And part of what I'm trying to communicate is that some felt tensions might not be the result of ill will. They might be a function of ignorance or misunderstanding the content of what one imagines they're supposed to believe under the guise of a particular label. Presumably, for instance, we're all supposed to believe in the wrath of God. It's in the Bible. But what if one can't imagine what that might mean? They, they, they quite, they almost quite in their, in, their, in their immediate imagination space, if you will, can't quite imagine what that might mean apart from something that all Christian hearts would recognize to be heinous. Certainly the solution is not to say, well, the Bible says wrath of God, so I guess my automatic intuitions of what that means must be right, and I just need to numb the part of me that feels kind of yikes about it. Uh, well, again, we'll talk more about this in a moment, but for, for suffice it to say for now or immediately, that there are a few factors we need to pull apart here and be careful about. Part of what we need to grasp is that human beings don't ever understand God or any command of God in a purely abstract way. And this is why being 
formed by the whole of scripture is so important for us because it does not just create all of these categories, scripture that is, doesn't create, just create all the categories for us, that is, inform us that there is a thing called the wrath and the love of God, but it also corrects those categories for us or our impressions or instincts about them. So we as individuals never hear the phrase wrath of God or love of God or don't lust or be gracious or rebuke those guys, apart from some real and embodied understanding of these things and what their application and use looks like on the ground. So you can learn what people really mean by the love of wrath and God uh, when, by seeing how these truths are used in their life and in, in, in the way they relate to others. And there are plenty of cases when you look at it this way where the rejection of some truth in a, in a use sense is at least partially rooted in just basic misunderstanding of what it's even supposed to mean. You know, so classic example for someone raised with an abusive father, for instance, it's often going to be difficult to imagine a father who judges, but who's not also hideous. That is to say, it's going to be hard to understand the goodness, the innate goodness and attractiveness of divine judgment. And it seems rather plain Christian wisdom to me to suspect that the living God, our Father, still has some interest in winning that person from their misunderstanding through the embodied, uh, through the embodied apparatus of the church. And so as the church, we you know, we try to be patient with misunderstanding and help people form a, a different image of what the Bible is talking about in things like divine judgment, not to get away from it, but because you actually want them to have a, a more precise and clear vision. And, and in such a case, of course, it's still proper to repent of any projection of one's own father upon God, but it would also involve actually seeing to repent would actually involve seeing God differently in the mind. That is, they, they need a clarified understanding, in fact, in order to repent. Repentance would not be recommendable, in fact, without that, because it would not be truly possible without a corrected understanding. That is to say, if one is framing a particular claim about God or about God's way in a distorted fashion, then movement toward that thing, even in the name of sort of white knuckling repentance, I'm going to do the thing, you know, is a movement still toward distortion. If repentance is truly a shift in one's relation to God, then true repentance must often pass through the understanding, through one's framing of reality, such that we see how we have misrepresented God and often misrepresented ourselves. Repentance and, and coming to realize who God is and what his law is actually like becomes not a matter of just saying, I don't get any of it, but that's fine. It's rather to the converted heart, it becomes relief upon relief and pleasure upon pleasure as all of God ministers to all of us through the whole of scripture and, and really the whole of reality. Um, put this way, you know, when we frame what's going on that way, the, the danger of the reverse track actually also becomes quite manifest. Uh, most often the kind of just read the Bible and do what it says approach, if, if used as an immediate way to trump all tensions and confusions, really cashes out in doing what some strong personality tells you it says. Recall, we are actually all confused about plenty of things. That's just true. Outsourcing your mind to the confident will unconfuse it for you, at least in a surrogate way. 
Uh, very few would claim that this is what's going on in these circumstances, but it's typically clear to any external observer when a dominant personality sort of lends their confidence to people by osmosis. True repentance, however, is never motivated by proving oneself to a person or a community. Uh, each man and woman stands before God alone. It is absolutely the case that we need others, that Christians should be deferential toward their leaders and, and, and a wonderful blessing to them, non-fussy, that the weight of tradition, that, that the weight of tradition speaks with a real authority, and that Christians must give supreme weight toward whatever they can glean from the scriptures. But all of those forces gather in an actual life whose decisions are one's own, and before, as, as Oz Guinness puts it memorably, it all exists before an audience of one when it is inflected through an individual life. The goal of pastoral instruction is not to get the pastor's approval, but to receive and internalize the wisdom of our shepherds so that we ourselves might become wise and at peace with the way of Christ in our own individual lives. Moreover, the kind of simplistic approach can be a bit self-flattering. Uh, it is possible, uh, if uh, let me say it differently, if it's possible to be to be self-deceptive and sin-covering and one's need to nuance everything, so it is possible to be self-deceptive and sin-covering and one's need for perfect clarity and lack of confusion about most things. Indeed, the impulse to, to kind of godlike modes of knowing in the scripture is often the stuff of demons who offer a sense of certainty via a shortcut without the pain of pilgrimage, trust, and, and, and real courage, which moves often in the darkness. Uh, my good friend Dale Stenberg told me the other day that what we seek is simplicity on the backside of complexity. Right on, Dale. <laughs> One false approach is to, to engineer clarity simply to avoid the feeling of uncertainty, but not the deeper reality of uncertainty. Another false approach is to hide in nuance so that nothing is ever actually clear and therefore I don't have to be pinned down because nothing can be pinned down. The proper approach, the healthy approach, the relieving approach, however, is to journey through nuance, through the, the, the confusion and the, and the complication of life toward integration, clarity, and insight. Uh, a good Thomist might say that these are little tastes of the beatific vision, each growth in our vantage point, one more taste of that final vision of things we look forward to when we are in the presence of wisdom himself. And so we may be self-deceptive, and we must and we must be seek to be honest with ourselves to not lie to ourselves about when this is you know likely to be the case but also we must be honest about when it's not the case or not likely to be the case the precious truth is that we actually do have a father who loves us who delights to show us his way and who will minister through Christ to all who are seeking him through taking up his means in prayer, listening to the scriptures, trying to understand the world, and seeking the counsel of the wise. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood here. Simplicity on the back of nuance doesn't mean that everything takes a great deal of nuance to understand. Some doctrines, principles, and practices can be grasped quite clearly in very simple ways. Nevertheless, real practical and mental life 
just like real relationships, marriage, for instance, involve a series of motions and stages and developments, periods of relative equilibrium, periods of questioning, etc. Moreover, it isn't the case that we generally have perfectly resolved selves on this side of heaven. And so while clarity often involves the, the aha moments I spoke above, I spoke about previously, most people will not always understand a truth or, or know for sure what they are supposed to do in all circumstances. Fortunately, uh, though, this, this helps to transition us to the second thing I want to cover in this video. The Christian tradition has an interesting way of talking about knowledge and about how man relates to God through his will and through his mind. So let's talk about knowledge for just a second, and then we'll talk about the knowledge of God, because it very much relates to, to uh, uh, the, the tensions we're trying to resolve here. In, in doing this, what I'm trying to show is that taking our questions, feelings, instincts, and intuitions seriously when we approach God is actually just a part of the proper way of things. Again, as we'll, as we'll see, not because they're a final authority, not because those things are the final authority, but because we journey through them toward God's purifying presence. So first... It's important to recall that our will and our mind are, are and our understanding and our affections, they don't always line up. The goal of a mature person is to become as integrated a self, a, a full face, as it were, as it were, as one can be. But compared to God, in the presence of God, we're all disintegrated you know, in the words of Isaiah, you know, he says, woe is me, I'm undone. Or as Lewis puts it, we're faceless. How can we, how can the gods meet us face to face till we have faces? Uh, and as we move through the world, through, through the world, we're not just processing it as kind of minds and bodies, but rather as whole selves, minds and bodies together. We're always interpreting in that embodied way, integrating impressions, dialoguing with the imagination, understanding reasons, moving by instinct, etc. In other words, we, we move through the world as entire and whole selves. Nevertheless, there is, there is some ideal ordering to the faculties within the, the Christian tradition. We ought to be governed by the mind not in the sense that we are to be engineers calculating the laws of logic relative to all the other things. Think of the mind rather as that kind of receptacle in you of the pattern of reality out there. Our minds are that whereby we are conscious, not just of an experience, but rather that we are having an experience. And inasmuch as the mind sees and understands through the other faculties, the true and the good, a person seeks to order one's faculties according to good judgment and wisdom. However, this, this well-ordering is an achievement of dialogue between one's faculties, not something that happens at the outset. It is precisely the mark of cult to feign the reign of the mind without the pilgrimage of the whole self through the other faculties. Moreover, one, one can see this on a, uh, one, one can see on this account that the, the, the mentally quickest guy, you know, the guy who can, you know, make the biggest, uh, you know, argumentative moves or the quickest ones is not automatically the wisest. 
Receiving the pattern of reality in one's soul involves the openness of all of your faculties of the whole self, the right ordering of all the faculties, and even the adjustment of one's mental instincts in accordance with and reflection upon the signals that you receive from elsewhere. And so because we shouldn't conflate the mind with the capacity to logic chop, wise men are found in all circumstances and classes because the pattern of reality can be internalized by the mind anywhere. The whole lived world of the non-intellectual craftsman is not one whit less interesting than the whole lived world of the philosopher. And each inflect the whole in a way that they have to offer and enrich one another. You know, this is Gandalf and Aragorn in Tolkien. Uh, the, you know, on the one hand, the sage, and on the other hand, the philosopher king, are those who are most widely traveled. Each have heard all of the voices of Middle Earth and, and, and imagine that the war against evil requires integrating each of those vantage points and letting each of them precisely be themselves. And so, and so in classical epistemology, knowing moves through the mind and the will and one sense of the beautiful, but and the mind doesn't automatically trump whatever signal each of those faculties register. Rather, the mind relates to the rest of our faculties, faculties precisely in listening to them. It receives signals from all other faculties precisely to help guide them and itself, the mind itself. And that latter part is crucial. The virtuous man doesn't just ignore his feelings, but he rather thinks about them. The virtuous man doesn't ignore the feelings of others and certainly does not assume that what is coming out of the mouth of others is a full account of why they have the feelings that they do. Uh, the virtuous man rather seeks to consider if one's feelings might be grasping things about reality in a nascent way that the mind hasn't quite gotten yet. Or perhaps, uh, perhaps we ask if someone's feelings about us might reflect more than they have completely spoken. Maybe they're agitated for some reason th that is difficult to put into words because it is hard to put one's impressions and feelings into words. Joseph Pieper, who is no postmodernist, <laughs> uh, argued precisely this in his classic uh, books on the virtues, that, that man's instinct and intuition is actually often ahead of his mind. And, and this does not mean that our gut has final authority, but, but our gut or our intuitions are not a trivial signal. That, so, so this is also true, by the way, in fact, in marriage. The amount of havoc that has been wreaked in marriage, you know, where the man always has perfectly clear algorithmic judgments and ignores the instinct of the wife because they aren't presented in, you know, sort of purely discursive and engineering nerd form. It's a massive amount of havoc. <laughs> but a wise husband tries to figure out if any tension between his mind and his wife's instincts are a signal to him about the smallness lack of openness and the distortion of his mind. Still, in marriage, as in the individual soul, this is not to make the mind the slave of instinct or intuition. Rather, the ordinary relation between these is dialogical and cooperative. And it might be the case after that dialogue, after that co cooperation, that there will still be tension between what seems clear to the mind and what seems good to the will. 
And if the Bible or reality seems clear about a certain thing, and I just can't, fi can't figure out why my soul remains in tension with it, then the mind must discipline the other faculties. And that's where the order does matter. It's, it's, it's an achievement. It's after that process. The mind disciplines the other faculties and keeps its direction of the whole self. That is to say, and we rightfully teach kids this, there are plenty of times you learn to trust God and move in his way, even when you aren't entirely clear why it's so much better than some other path or some uh, on, on some point especially as we learn to trust God through time, and especially if we learn to see that the more we try to understand him and his laws, the more we see his goodness. We learn to, to figure out that he's probably got more figured out than we do. <laughs> the overall point here, though, is that, is that the mind, while the mind has a final authority in the guidance of the self, it is an authority exercised only when rightfully earned through honest engagement or signal receiving from all the other faculties. And so what happens when people outsource their mind or simply ignore their feelings about what is good and beautiful, even if they begin to speak true sentences in a regurgitated fashion, is that the actual substance of what they are believing in their imagination may very well still be distorted. And they may also be dangerously encouraged to suppress instincts that their mind actually ought to listen to, even if not to obey. What does all of this have to do with our approach to God? Thomas would say something like this. I'm approximating Thomas here. God is implicitly known in all truths and craved in all desires. What's the idea of a statement like that? Well, clearly Thomas isn't talking about overt knowledge or overt desiring. Rather, the point is that man is the, is the animal that rests content only in final perfect, only in final and perfect unity with the truth and with goodness. Uh, so anytime we desire something, our will wants a perceived good. And anytime our mind seeks to know, our mind is grasping a perceived truth. But as soon as our mind gets its truth and our will gets its good, that, that piece of pie or that girl or that intellectual aha moment, they are left wanting more. Uh, and you know the story from here. We get that thing we always wanted. You get the girl and you want more. We arrive at that insight we've been seeking. And then we see that there's not, that there's, we, we arrive at that insight and we see that there's so much more left to be known. And what's the stopping point of this? As our mind ascends from truth to truth and our will leaps from good to good, where does it find rest? They find rest in and are always implicitly in all of their doings agitating for truth and goodness himself, God. The, the mind desires to find its rest in God as he presents himself in the mode of truth, as he's cryptically and nascently present in all truth grasped by the mind. And the will seeks its final rest in God as he presents himself in the mode of goodness, as our will grasps good after good, constantly agitating for that final good. So man as a, as a dynamic creature is moving toward God in a multifaceted way. Now, now, it's obviously key to note that the fall distorts our mind and suppresses our will, but it is a distortion and a suppression of what we are by nature. 
it is the very nature of created man to move toward completion in the Father. The fall doesn't get rid of this motion in us, but rather redirects it to idols, ultimately ourselves, and suppresses it. And the redemption of man then is not a matter of fixing one piece that whips the other into shape. It's rather the redemption of the whole man, the redemption of the whole dialogue of the self, the whole motion between mind and will in order to arrive at a will which can submit to perceived truth in full honesty and trust because it has not been merely suffocated along the way, but actually raised up and dignified. And from this perspective, you can again see the danger of going any other way. It's not that we don't submit our wills to what the mind perceives to be true. It is rather that we don't so trust the righteousness and thoroughness of our mental instincts so that, we, so that we don't think that they require any correction through other human faculties and through the emotional reactions, not to mention the thoughts of others. No path of wisdom could either ignore or be governed by those kinds of things. So let's frame the coming videos in this light. We might say that the moral and aesthetic layer of the God question comes from within that, that sort of space in ourselves that desires good and loves beautiful things. Sometimes our tension with a claim of Christianity comes from that, that arena, if you will. And what we'll be doing for the next few videos is trying to sit honestly within that space while also bringing in the orienting insight of the mind. Perhaps we'll scratch some itches by shining the illumination of truth on what remains pre-discursive, nascent, and cryptic in us. So if the, the moral and aesthetic layer relate to man's dynamic motion toward God, grasped as the good in the human will, then the final philosophical and rational layer of the God question relates to man's dynamic motion toward God grasped as the truth in the human mind. The most satisfying approach to the God question will necessarily involve uh, uh, both of these in their unity uh, so that we pursue all of God with all of ourselves or in a different key, God, God in the God man uh, meets us as the face of the true and the good and summons us awake out of our sin and back to the father. Uh, I can't help but think about the enigma of the God man here. here. Here is certainly, we see in Christ, here is certainly the greatest truth teller in history. And yet here is also a man who is so manifestly good and whose character is so manifestly beautiful at the same time Jesus slips out of our attempt to possess him in any single aspect, merely as drawing upon that in us which would know the truth, that in us which wills good, that in us which that loves beauty. He gathers these, the Christ gathers these into a singularity before the face of which all men, like Isaiah, are disintegrated. We feel faceless, in the words of Lewis, before the face of Christ because he is so concrete and so integrated. And yet our Lord summons us precisely into himself, into his image, into his own pattern. And he does this both through the agitations of our will and through the motions of our mind. 
And so in the next couple of videos, we'll talk about things like sexuality and justice, moving, moving roughly from aesthetics to morals in that second layer of the God question. And then we'll begin to talk about that third layer of the God question, the, the mind's motion to God understood as the truth, which the mind is after. Uh, until then, I'm glad to finally have gotten to do one more of these, and I hope two more will follow by the year's end. Thanks for watching, and I look forward to seeing you again next time.